From NPR, this is Hearing Voices. Welcome to Love's Labors, a Hearing Voices special, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Amy Dickinson. I write Ask Amy, the syndicated advice column. I work in a tiny office at the Chicago Tribune. My desk is covered with letters sent to me by readers. I'm exposed to heartache, heartbreak, despair, ennui, and love. Lots and lots of love. What I don't know about love is a lot. But I do know this. Love and anxiety go together. Listen to this. Dear Amy, I'm in the sixth grade, and I really like this person. I have mixed feelings for him. I want to stop liking him, but then at the same time, I want to become better friends with him. How can I get over him and perhaps stop thinking about him? Or if that's impossible, do you have any flirting tips or ways I can get to know him better? Hmm. Uh, I'm stumped. But Kevin Kling learned early in life about love and anxiety. In Miss Jensen's fifth grade class, the day before Valentine's Day, I carefully sort through my stack of Valentine's cards. 30 cards to a pack, 30 students to a class. Choices have to be made. What does this card say? What should this card say? And what should this card not be saying? Never give a girl a picture of a car or a boy with a ballerina. And when in doubt, go with a circus motif. The card bearing the words, Be My Valentine, is the most intimate and therefore the most dangerous. You're stuck with four to a pack, so send them to one or two girls you trust and your best pal with a note, You Know What I Mean, penciled in the cartoon figure. Then put the card in an envelope with a pastel-colored candied heart, worst candy ever invented with phrases like, Why Not? and "Uh Uh-Oh! and What's That? Phrases that seem to have nothing to do with love. Then drop the envelope into a brightly colored shoebox and walk away. Never look back. Walk away. When I dig into my doily tinfoil and red crepe paper shoebox, I find 28 circus motifs and a couple of cars. Later that day, we assemble in the gym for a social dance with all the girls against one wall, all the boys against the other. Miss Jensen steps into the middle of the gym, blows her whistle, tweet, and we all come together to find partners and start dancing, tweet. Then Miss Jensen puts a poker record on the metal record player, that record player you could hit with a medicine ball and it wouldn't skip. You could see the vinyl peeling up from behind the needle, tweet, and I'd run out looking for a partner, but none of the girls wanted to dance with me. I mean, I was tiny and they were so much taller and their bodies were starting to change. They didn't want some little head down in there. And then there she was every time. Joan Quinlivan. Joan Quinlivan. Five foot ten since the fifth grade. And I'd come together with Joan and I'd wear my special sweater with the stretchy sleeves and she'd pull one sleeve out and then the other and dance with the ends of my sleeves. Then Judy Martinez moved to town. Judy Martinez. She was small like me, but she was beautiful. Oh, so beautiful. Judy Martinez. Oh, Lord, I would say her name over and over and over. Martinez. Drawing her name on my notebook, replacing Big Daddy Roth hot ride drawings with the name Martinez. And when she entered the room, I would gobble up every second, using seconds as fast as they could arrive and holding them, trying to make time stop. Just another second, just another second, just another second, Judy. The cracked cup of love, after all, is in constant need of filling. And when Judy tells me I look good, man, I believe her. When a man is in love and looks in the mirror, he sees exactly what he's being told. But when a woman looks in the mirror, she glances over and see who's doing the telling. For when I tell Judy she's beautiful, she looks at me and says, think so? Oh. Oh, man, I say, yeah, I know it. I was tore apart in love and rebuilt in her eyes and like star-crossed Italian lovers, I like Dante would dauntless march into hell's gapping gape for her and she like Sophia Loren throwing out a basin of water screaming, but mom, I love him until we ride off on a three-wheel Harley to join the circus. But in love's game of Red Rover, Red Rover, tragedy is often called to come on over, and Judy was transferred that spring to another school. And although we promised to write and stay in touch, our love grew pastel. Time and distance make wonderful in-laws, but poor lovers. 
But luckily in this life, a person gets his allotment of circus motifs, a few hot rods, a couple of ballerinas, and a precious few Be My Valentines. And these days I'm blessed with love anew, and I count the seconds with her as treasures. I recently read an article in the paper about an elderly couple in Chicago, an incident where a woman was crossing train tracks and her heel became lodged in the rail. Her husband rushed to her side, yet despite their attempts, the shoe would not pull free. And as the train approached, her husband kissed his wife and said goodbye and held her as the train passed through. There was speculation as to the man's reasons for holding on. Some said he couldn't bear to live without his wife. Some said he wanted to join her in eternity. But I feel he was thinking, one more second, just one more second, one more second. Dear Amy, I'm 16, and there's this boy I dated for six months. We did everything together. Our relationship went good. We hardly ever argued, and if we did, it wasn't serious. Well, after a while, I noticed he began to change and started acting as if he didn't want me around. So when I confronted him, he broke up with me. Not in a mean way. Well, it's been going on two months, and we've stayed really good friends. We hang out together still, and sometimes we play lovey-dovey. But I want to be more than a friend to him. I still see in his eyes that he's thinking about me. Now he has a girlfriend. It's not serious or anything because he still kicks it with me more than with her. He's so nice. Sometimes too nice so I can see why I can't break up with her. I just want him to know that I still love him and that I want him back. How can I tell him? club at the New Palestine High School in Indiana, singing the theme from Midnight Cowboy. If things went smoothly between people, if romance always led to love, and if love really meant never having to say you're sorry, I'd be out of business. Dear Amy, since puberty, I've been attracted to the female foot. As I became older, I realized that I have a foot fetish. I'm fortunate enough to have met a woman who understands and accepts my fetish. I've tried to become aroused by other parts of the female body, but I can't. The older I get, the more intense my foot fetish becomes. I also have the urge to compliment women who have attractive feet or who wear sexy shoes. Is this acceptable? Some relationships can make you cringe. Cringe love, that's what producer Nancy Updike calls it. A cringe love story always starts with a one-liner. I went out with a guy whose role models were Jean Genet and Clint Eastwood. I once went out with this alcoholic, and uh, I guess I just didn't realize he was an alcoholic because he was doing so much cocaine at the time. I once dated a guy who three months after we broke up slept with both his stepmother and his stepsister. You probably noticed these are all women. 
That's because cringe love stories are usually embarrassing. And I'm generalizing here, but in my experience, women like telling embarrassing love stories. We bond over them. We like to one-up each other. You did that for love? Well, I did this. And while I'm generalizing, let me also say that as far as I can tell, the most common cringe love story is the kind that takes place in your early 20s with a guy not that much older, and you are new at love. It's not your first relationship, but everything about your romantic self still feels on loan from somewhere else. Movies, rumors, your friends. You don't quite know who you are yet when it comes to love, because you're still becoming that person. And everything these early 20s cringe love stories have to teach us, we can learn from a woman from Texas named Julie. I once went out with a guy who, while we were dating, joined the Hare Krishnas. So how did he how did he tell you this? Well, we started going to um, Prashadam, which is this thing the Krishnas do on Sundays. They have this big feast, and basically it was a way to get free food. Free food is very important in this story. The reason is that Julie's boyfriend was a squatter. Do you know what that is? For years, in cities all over the country, people have been taking over abandoned buildings and living in them. Squatting. People do it for a lot of reasons. Anti-corporate idealism, adventure lack of interest in getting a job. Julie's boyfriend was a middle-class kid from New York who, when they met, was squatting in an abandoned warehouse in Austin, Texas, bartering, hitchhiking, and keeping an eye out for free food. Julie, at the time, lived in an air-conditioned apartment and drove an Oldsmobile. She was in her last year of college. We used to go around whenever I wanted pizza. We couldn't order pizza. We had to go to all the pizza places and ask for mistakes because he didn't believe in paying for anything. And he used to say that when we did that, that I couldn't go in because I looked too much like a sorority girl, which I'm not, but, you know, he said I looked like one. So squatter guy meets college girl, a princess, he'd call her, and they fall in love during an AIDS outreach workshop. A lot of cringe love stories take this form. Living on the edge guy meets suburban girl. They move in together to her bourgeois apartment. He takes her on midnight bike rides. She buys him dinner in real restaurants. He spare changes on the corner to take them out for ice cream. And every week, they go to Prashadam to get a free vegetarian meal from the Hare Krishnas. And then one day he came home and he said he thought he'd like to, after Prashadam, and he said he thought he'd like to go to classes in the morning. They had classes where you could learn more about Krishna consciousness. And I said that that was cool. I wasn't really interested in it. So he started going to classes. That's how it started. Then he came home and he wanted me to shave his head, which wasn't that big of a deal. I thought it was actually kind of cute. Um, but then he came home and he had the gear. He had a, um, this long white sheath they call a dhoti. And um, he told me he was going to start wearing that. And that's when I started feeling kind of weird about it. We started fighting. We started fighting because he had this new belief system. He'd become totally vegan. Um, so we couldn't go to our favorite restaurants because, well, not only was it that he was vegan, but he couldn't go to a place where he didn't know what the emotions of the cook were. Like if they were angry, that would get into the food. These were all things he'd picked up in Krishna consciousness. Every relationship that doesn't work out has some problem that can't be solved. With cringe love, it's an embarrassing problem. And looking back, it's not just the problem that makes you cringe. It's how long the relationship continued after this problem could not have been more clear, not only to you, but also to all your friends. That is, if you weren't hiding it from them. And all of this was a secret, you know, from all of my friends. Like, I was didn't tell any of them anything. But one day I came home and I had a friend over and John was there and I walked in and my whole living room smelled of incense and he turned my bookshelf into a shrine to Swami Prabhupada. There was this big, you know, picture, there was candles, there was scarves. And I said, you know, honey, who's that? And he said, that's Swami Prabhupada. And I'm like, okay. 
And he said, do you want me to take him down? And gets defensive right away. And I'm like, no, that's cool. I was just wondering who there is a shrine to in my living room. So then later, um, my friend left, and um, we just had this huge, huge fight. And it started because he had these beads, and he'd gotten me these beads. And the Krishnas have these, kind of like a rosary, but it's about 20 beads, and you're supposed to um, repeat this mantra. It's out of hair, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Um, You're supposed to repeat it 20 times. You should do it 400 times a day. So he's decided that if I do this, that I'll be happy, that all this anger I'm having is because I'm not chanting Hare Krishna and being happy. So I take these beads, (laughs) and... I'm like, I'm not going to do this. And he said, why not? Why won't you worship Krishna? This is the moment every cringe relationship comes down to in the end. The point where one person turns to the other and asks a question like, why not? Why won't you worship Krishna? That's because at the heart of the cringe is a fundamental disagreement in the way you see the world. He's Montague, you're Capulet. He's 60 Minutes, you're Felicity. He's Potato, you're Potato, but you just can't call the whole thing off. Because on paper, the relationship seems so romantic. The very things that make you cringe looking back at the time were just challenges on the path to love. And not just any love, the best kind, impossible love. I mean, there was a point where we were, I wanted to go to law school, and we were talking about moving to San Francisco, and I would go to Bolt, and he would hang out at the airport. Wait a minute, you would go where, and he would go to the airport? Bolt, the law school at Berkeley is called Bolt. And he would go to the airport. I don't understand. The Christians hang out at the airport. (laughs) Right. Julie laughs when she tells this now. She knows this story is one of the funniest things that's ever happened to her, and she loves telling it. She savors every absurdity in the story, and every absurd turn within every absurdity. But when I talked to her a few days after our interview, she said, you know, it's the weirdest thing. After we talked that night, I went home and cried. For Julie, this relationship was the first time she fell in love. John was different from anyone else she'd ever known. When she had to go out of town the first week after they met, she thought about him every minute. And when I got back, um, he'd sent me cards from every place in Austin, you know, with my name in them or with like a poem about me in them. I mean, he just pursued me and it was just, um, he was just really romantic and excited. Like, we did not go out for a movie and a dinner ever, I think, the whole time we dated. Not that that's not nice. I mean, you know, that's great and everything. But I remember he wrote me this card from when he went on the hitchhiking trip, and he took a picture of me with him. And the postcard said, you know, hey, cheesecake, thanks for the cheesecake pic. (laughs) He said, I show it around to the other guys on the, he was actually train hopping at that point, um, on the train, and he says it solicits envious grunts of approval, but no one says anything boring like she's beautiful. And I just thought, you know, who would write love letters like this? She's reciting these lines from the postcard from memory. It's the only love letter she's kept as she's moved from place to place. But then that's part of it. Her love for him is part of what she's cringing about when she looks back. What's the part of the story that, um, where you cringe most and just think, ugh, why did I do that? I think it was when I ironed the dhoti. Remember the dhoti? That's that long white sheath Julie's boyfriend had started wearing. He asked her one day to iron it. He was 25 feet long, and I ironed the whole thing. So you did iron it? I ironed the dirty. And what did you say to yourself about why you were ironing it? I'm in love. I don't know. <laughs> what do you say when you do stupid <laughs> You know, I wanted him to look nice for Temple. I didn't want him to be the bad-looking bhakta. <laughs> With the uncool girlfriend. Not wanting to be uncool motivates a surprising number of cringe love stories. I had long talks about cringe love with a few women besides Julie, 
one of whom once found herself working two jobs to support a boyfriend who spent all day writing in his journal about the affair he was having with someone else. I mean, the whole situation was, was pretty ugly. And yet, you know, I was blinded to the ugliness of it because I thought we were so cool. I mean, this guy was, um, you know, a fast, exciting, shiny train. And, you know, he said, hop on a board, and I did, and I wrote it for all it was worth. What makes you cringe is not so much that you are in a relationship that now seems ridiculous. It's that you wanted that ridiculous relationship. You got on the train. It was romantic. You were right in there. And you know what could happen again at any time. Who isn't willing to be ridiculous for love? Hello, I'm Barbie. Thanks for inviting me in. You and I have so many things to talk about. You know, I used to wonder what it would be like to go to my first dance, have my very first date, wear my first formal and have a whole wardrobe of pretty clothes. Every girl loves to think about these things. I'm sure you do, too. I even like to sing about it. And that's what Ken and I are going to do right now. So listen a while, and soon we'll be singing together. Coming up, weddings, lots of them. Mass marriages in a sports stadium, weddings on top of the trade towers. They're all in a minute when we return with Love's Labors from HearingVoices.com. Growing up means learning so many different things Like reading, writing, arithmetic, presidents and kings Each lesson is important, believe it or not They taught me almost everything But one thing they forgot I learned how to read a book Learn how to write a letter But nobody taught me how to fall in love Then one day I looked at you And quick as a flash it happened Though nobody taught me I knew what to do I fell in love like that with you Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. From NPR, this is HearingVoices.com. Welcome back to the Hearing Voices special, Love's Labors. I'm Amy Dickinson, and this is David Greenberger and Three Leg Torso from their CD, Whispers, Grins, Blood Loss, and Handshakes. David Greenberger talks to elderly people. He collects their stories. This one was told to him by James Rivietto. My mother was a lovely woman, a lovely woman. She says to me, Jim, where's your girlfriend? I didn't have any girlfriend. I was busy taking care of her, you know. I said, you're my girlfriend. Oh, come on, get a girlfriend. My three sisters, they're all married, and one more brother, he was married too. She says, get yourself a girlfriend. I said, all right, I will, I will. So finally, I got a girlfriend. I brought her to the house. Mom said, Jim, when are you going to get married? I said, wait a minute. Wait a second. So anyway, she asked me I don't know how many times, and finally I said, Mommy, January 15th, 1940, I'm going to get married. Oh, good, 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 she said. A month before that time, she passed away. Couldn't even come to the wedding. Can you imagine that? 
I'm telling you honestly. So I had the reception, but nothing to drink, just the food, that's all. No music or nothing, that's my life. So I'm an advice columnist. Ask Amy, that's me. A lot of the mail that comes to me concerns weddings. Weddings seem to bring out the worst in some people. They fight and carry on over trivial things. And even though it's annoying, I understand it. Couples are trying to create a moment that will become a memory that will last for the rest of their lives. After the twin towers of the World Trade Center were brought down by a terrorist attack, radio producers The Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, collected stories of weddings made memorable, not just because of the marriages that happened, but because of where they happened. Message 27 was received at 1.20 p.m. Friday. Hi, uh, my name is Bob Crutzel. My wife Barbara and I were married at Windows on the World on October 9th, 1976. The only sound recording we have of that event is us taking our wedding vows. We kept that tape in a, in a safe deposit box for 20 years. My name is Bob Crutzel. Barbara and I were married at Windows on the World. That was the 107th floor of the World Trade Center. I did always imagine myself getting married in a church. I was raised Italian Catholic, and Bob is Russian Jewish. It was a tense situation. My parents and my brother weren't coming. Both families uh, got together at a restaurant. This is three years earlier. And we were talking about who would go first. Would it be a priest or the rabbi? And I just basically said, I've had enough. And so we decided that we would make all the arrangements. We're getting married. Would you like to come? And lo and behold, everybody said, sure. Barbara and Bob asked you here today to help them celebrate a very happy occasion. It is the day they have chosen to make public at this ceremony. The World Trade Center was pretty new then. And I thought that would impress them very much to get married at Windows on the World. The view would just take your breath away, uh, especially from uh, their, what they call their hors d'oeuvrery. It was 1976, and we wrote our own ceremony and our own vows. That was very popular then. Um, and we had Color My World was our wedding song. Yeah, the group Chicago, Color My World. As time goes by, I realize just what you mean. I wore a dress that was a peasant style, and um, on my head I wore just a little chapel veil. We drove there in Bob's little pinto, and it was pouring rain, and the winds were howling. Khalil Gibran echoes these sentiments in his book, The Prophet. We took with us a handheld tape recorder. We had patterned part of the ceremony on some of the thoughts of Khalil Gibran, uh, how the cypress and the oak do not grow in each other's shadow. I'm looking at my wedding album now, and um, when we got married, there were a lot of doubts about how, you know, how long we would last. I said to my husband on our 25th wedding anniversary that we lasted longer than the World Trade Center. I thought that was um, kind of ironic. It was devastating. Message 2 was received at 3.10 p.m. December 4th. Hello, my name is James Burton. My wife and I were married at the Top of the World Observation Deck on February 14, 1998. They were looking for 55 couples who wanted to get married at the World Trade Center. 55 couples, 110 people to match with 110 stories of the building. If there was in the background, such a thing. As a wish come true. I am Mrs. Vanessa Johnson. I would wish. He's always singing around the house. That's like our song. I used to come through the World Trade Center every morning on my way to work. And I would take the PATH train to World Trade. And when you come up the escalators, those long escalators in World Trade Center, there was an electronic billboard. And it said, Get married on top of the world, Valentine's Day. I wrote an essay. Emailed it over. By 2 o'clock, I got a response saying, you know, congratulations. (laughs) I was so happy, and it wasn't until later on in the day that I realized I had to tell John (laughs) that we were going to get married in six days. Whenever we have an argument, he's the one that came up with, whenever we see the World Trade Center, we have to kiss, no matter what. And at first, I was like, man, I'm upset. I don't want to give you a kiss. Sometime we would be somewhere out in Jersey, and you'd look up, 
on the turnpike or something, and there's a World Trade Center, and we're sitting in the car, not speaking, ignoring each other, but because we see them now, I have to give them a kiss, and then, you know, we kind of laugh, and it was something that put us back on track when we couldn't get on track, you know, on our own. I want to welcome you to the World Trade Center. I'm Judge Frederick Berman. I'm Judge Frederick Berman. For many years, I've had the pleasure and privilege of performing weddings on Valentine's Day atop the World Trade Center. We did three an hour, every 20 minutes. They would put ads in papers around the country and abroad saying, if you are interested in getting married atop the World Trade Center on Valentine's Day, write us a letter and tell us why you would like to do it. The weddings that I actually performed, I have copies of all those letters so that I could personalize each of the ceremonies. The top cards are my notes. They met at the World Trade Center two years ago. He works in the food and beverage department. My name is Enrique Mejia, and I work in the food and beverage department. I wrote that... I just couldn't see myself getting married nowhere else but up here. I was working downstairs as a tour guide. He was working up here. So it's like everything happened here. We got engaged last year about Valentine's. He called me over to the window to see the view, and then he just popped the question. And everybody from the food and beverage came with wine glasses and just started celebrating it. My family's in Jersey, so my mother talked about she's scared of the Vegas, so... She wasn't coming. Her family's the same thing. They're scared of elevators, the heights. So we told them 107 floor. They were like, no, no, that's all right. When you finish, come see us. Brenda and Enrique, I want to welcome you to this wonderful day. Hello, my name is Carmen Garcia. I am 53 years old. I live by myself. My husband left me two years ago for a 23-year-old woman. About seven months ago, I met a wonderful, caring man. His name is Orlando Alvarado, and he is 65 years old. He looks after me and takes me to the hospital when I'm sick, something that my ex-husband never did in 36 years of marriage. When we met, it was love at first sight, and we know we want to spend the rest of our life together. Thank you, Carmen Garcia. My name is Angela Rodin. I'm Carmen Garcia's daughter. Carmen Garcia del Barato. They are from Ecuador. When the priest married them, he said, okay, we have a surprise for three couples. They felt that the letter that she wrote, they deserved the first prize. They said, okay, congratulations, you have won a trip to Morocco. And they were like, what? You know, we didn't expect this. Being to the fact that they couldn't travel because it was a family matter, they didn't go, so they gave them tickets to a Broadway show. I'm Michael Drinkard. My wife and I, Jill Eisenstadt, got married in the World Trade Tower, August 25th, 1990. In 1990, it was before the first blast, and so there was parking down in the basement. I remember Jill's father was, he really wanted us to get married in the World Trade Towers because there was parking. Jill and Michael, I know that both of you met the Columbia Graduate Program. You're both accomplished writers. We really knew we wanted to get married someplace that had meaning. And we wanted to get married in Manhattan, where we met, and a lot of our dreams came true. So, I mean, I never really had any love for them as being beautiful in themselves, but just because they were just the biggest things around and lit up and somehow seemed to follow us around in some way. And there was two of them and two of us. (laughs) I don't know, they just represented dreaming big and there being the possibility that things could happen. Message three. My name is Bill McDonald. I proposed to my wife in 1985 on top of the World Trade Center. And I prepared on a landfill diagonally across from the South Tower toward the Hudson River, approximately 100 luminarias in the shape of the Christian symbol of marriage, which is a cross with two interlocking circles. Lit them, met my wife for a surprise date, uh, and my girlfriend. I am Sunita Esmuki. The wedding 
at the World Trade Center was really perfect for the flamboyance of both our personalities. And I think even poetically, it, it appealed to me because, you know, he and I were both from different parts of the world. And the World Trade Center seemed to be... It's a, it's a good international symbol of cultures coming together. He is from Singapore, and we had an email correspondence, very old-fashioned type of romantic letter writing. I had prepared this ceremony, which I felt would be uh, quite symbolic of what I wanted for us to experience in our marriage. And I combined things that I knew from Christian weddings and Hindu weddings. I was wearing my mother's red silk sari that she had used for her engagement. And then I fed him sweets to sweeten our lives. It's making me very sad, actually, to tell you that though we had a very good start at the World Trade Center, um, at this point, uh, he and I are not together anymore. Um, and it is surprising that this uh, relationship really saw its termination when the World Trade Center collapsed, you know, in uh, September 11. Um, then that was when he and I really felt that the relationship was over. You know, the World Trade Center crumbling to the ground, besides it being a um, tragedy of world proportions, it's also a very personal uh, loss of a dream there is one particular wedding that I officiated up there several years ago that will always stay with me. My name is Pastor Alan Ramirez, and I was struck by this particular couple because uh, they were homeless. Apparently, they were already married, but they decided to be married again. And I remember them saying, when we were married, we were both homeless. We were out on the streets. We just went to City Hall. There was nobody there. And she said it was as if we didn't belong to anyone. There was no family. There were no friends. And as she stood up there on top of the World Trade Center, she said to me, we wanted to come up here because by coming up here, we'll be on top of the world. And in essence, now we belong to everyone. The Kitchen Sisters from their Sonic Memorial Project, mixed by Barney Jones of Earwax Productions. I've been to a lot of weddings. Well, one day I witnessed 2,500 of them, a mass wedding sponsored by the Unification Church in D.C. The blessed event was held at a football stadium. Call me a hopeless romantic. Tell me I'm in love with love. Or brand me a hapless divorcee and feel sorry for me. Whatever. I just love a wedding. Mainly, I like my own weddings, so forgive me for trying to get in on a good thing. I thought this would be the perfect occasion to say, I do. The room was booked, there was music, clergy, and thousands of invited guests. All I needed was a groom. Hello, Michael? Speaking. Hey, it's Amy. Amy. Amy Dickinson. <laughs> Amy. Yeah. It's been years. What's up? Well, I, I was wondering if you would maybe want to go to this thing with me. What kind of thing? Well, you know, it's a, um, well, it's a wedding. Uh, jeez, uh, Amy, I, I, I don't think I have the right shoes. Oh. Hi, Chris. Uh, hello. Yes. It's Amy. Hi, Amy. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Good. Thanks. Good. Um, listen, I have this thing I want to go to, and I was wondering if maybe you'd like to come. Well, I have to. I'd have to uh, check with my wife, but. Uh, well, but. You. You got married. Oh, I didn't tell you that. Oh, I had no idea. Do you guys get along? Hello, Kevin Blyer. Hey, Kevin. Yes? It's Amy. Amy Dickinson.
By the time I got to my seat on the 30-yard line, the bridal couples were already on the field, sitting on folding chairs that stretched all the way from the 10-yard line to the end zone of the opposing side. The grooms wore black. They were seated next to their betrothed, the brides, and brides, and more brides. Guess I wasn't the only girl without a date. Turns out this wedding was lousy with brides, like several hundred extra The brides sat quietly next to each other in their own quadrant of the football field, pretty in their poofy white dresses and matching veils. They carried stiff bouquets of plastic flowers, like identical wedding cake dolls. I couldn't take my eyes off them. Reverend Sung Young Moon and his wife, Mrs. Moon, walked down a wide staircase onto a large stage. They wore golden crowns, the kind kings and queens wear in storybook kingdoms. The blessings were said in Korean, About 2,000 brides and 2,000 grooms exchanged rings. That's when the extra brides looked down, rummaged in their coats and purses, and got busy in the way people do when they're embarrassed and being watched. The brides put rings onto their own fingers and then laid their hands in their laps. After the ceremony, the brides and grooms and brides stood up and milled around the football field. An announcement came over the PA system. If you can't find your spouse, it said, Please proceed to the Spouse Locator Service at the left-hand side of the stage. The Unification Church had provided the lonely brides with framed 8 by 10 photos of their husbands, who were mostly from other countries and couldn't make it to the ceremony. They carried their husbands' pictures around like door prizes at a banquet. I left the field with the leftover brides and went into the stadium. And that's when I saw them the lines to the ladies' rooms. Every bathroom at the stadium had a queue of brides curving along the wall, the way they do at rock concerts or playoff games. I counted 53 brides in one line. They carried the pictures of their new husbands and wore winter coats over their gowns. I joined up with them, all of us, spouseless. Our line moved pretty slowly, the way these things do. The brides started to get antsy, shifting from foot to foot, eager to start their new lives. Or get into the bathroom. Dear Amy, my parents fight a lot. Sometimes it scares me and my sisters. Last week, my sister sat on my lap, crying until we could go to our grandparents' house. I don't know what to say to my mom and dad. They say not to worry about anything, but I do. The main interpreters of marriage, the primary witnesses to the union, are the kids. Scott Carrier's daughter, Jessie, is a witness to her parents' marriage, and she's a pretty accurate reporter. Do you know how Mom and I met? Um, I think you were working on an antelope story, and Mom was doing filming or something. You met each other, and then you liked each other, and <laughs> and then you married each other. I remember sitting on my front steps in the morning, waiting for her to ride up the hill on her bicycle. It was in the spring, late April, and it had been raining, steam coming up off the street and sidewalks. I was waiting on the steps, and I realized that I was in love with her, and that everything was going to be different now. She'd ride up the hill and set her bike down on the grass, and we'd go inside, and she'd live with me there for a long time, maybe forever. I knew it. I saw the whole thing coming, just like I see everything now. The only thing missing is the ending. I remember lots of times you were nice to Mom. I mean, she told me once that for her birthday or for Christmas or something, you bought her perfume, and you wanted to get her the right one, and so you went around and you had like a sample of each and you were smelling it and you were deciding what you couldn't decide which one to give her and then when you come home you hug her my house inside had no furniture other than two chairs and a table i made some coffee and moved the table over by the window so she could sit in the sun she was a modern dancer small and thin wearing a white cotton blouse no bra no need for a bra shorts and sandals, and sweating a bit from the ride. Her skin was dark tanned already so early, lovely legs but with lots of scars on the knees and shins, and feet that were like little creatures unto themselves, beautiful and frightening, 
They had the structure of the Golden Gate Bridge, a high, sinewy arch with built-in springs and pulleys, and long toes stretching out for purchase. Do you feel like anything's a mystery between Hillary and me that you don't understand? This week, when I ask our 11-year-old daughter, Jessie, this question, she pauses for at least a half a minute. I've asked maybe a million questions in my reporting career, but this has got to be the longest pause I've ever heard. I don't really think about it much, and I, it's, it's a hard thing to think about. Why? Because it's, I usually don't pay much attention to what you and Mom are doing between each other, but kind of I do, and I don't really wonder anything. Um, I don't, I don't think that there's something that I don't know that I really want to know, like a mystery or anything. I'd seen her dance the night before in front of a small audience downtown, and her style was wrapped around the idea, her idea, that she really weighed nothing at all, and that her body was only there to tell little jokes, her little jokes, whatever might come to mind. I asked her if she liked my house, and she said she liked the view. She asked me what I thought about her concert, and I said I thought it was funny. She said, funny? Only funny? Funny and beautiful, I said. And she said, that's better. Do you think Hillary and I are in love? Yeah. I mean, you... Because you sometimes have fights. I don't. I think people who love each other have to have fights sometimes. Otherwise, they don't understand each other very well. Like they might. Not everybody is exactly the same, and so people might disagree about something. But but two people who love each other have to understand each other, and to understand each other, they have to know what they're thinking. Up until this time, I'd been living alone and was not unhappy. I had a house and a dog and a car. No job, no need for a job. I had money from the National Endowment for the Arts to produce a radio story about chasing antelope, which, as far as I could tell, only required a wholehearted effort to live as much like a primitive hunter as possible. It was a problem I was working on by myself, and really, I had no idea how to go about it, other than by trying to live simply and by trying to stay outside and cover as much ground as possible. But there she was, finally arrived, come to stay. When you get married, you ever thought about getting married? Not really, not much. You haven't thought about it at all? You never thought, well, when I get married, it'll be like this? Or... No, I never thought, like, when I get married, I will have, or it will be exactly like this or something like that. Maybe a little bit? I don't know. I mean, I don't believe we can ever guess the future or, like, I can hope, but I never, I don't like saying what I want to be when I grow up because you never know. She asked me why I only had one fork in the kitchen. I said it was all I needed and then asked her how many she had in her kitchen. Eight, she said, and at least ten spoons. And I have some glasses, different kinds, even wine glasses. I like to have friends over. I like to cook and have friends over to eat. Don't you have any friends? Yeah, I have a friend, but he doesn't have any hands, I said, looking over at my dog. You know, she said, I've been dreaming about you. I think I'm in love with you. How do you know she supports me? She doesn't wish I mean she doesn't say to us that she regrets that she married you or that and I mean not having a job sometimes and so she still appreciates um, what she has 
I went downstairs and brought up the pieces of a wooden bed frame that had been left there by a previous tenant. I had the mattress and everything, and I asked where she'd like to have it. She said, I like to sit in bed in the morning and drink coffee. So I moved the table and put the bed there in the sunlight. When you get married, if your marriage turns out like our marriage, you know, between your mom and me, mm -hmm. would that be good enough for you, or would you want more than that? I think it would be fine. I mean, you guys seem pretty happy. And I think that if our, my marriage, if I got married, was like yours, I would be pretty happy too. And I'm, I think I would try, I would try to make a little more money. But otherwise, getting along like that, I think that would be, it would be a very, it would be a good marriage. This recording of the Faimu Washboard Band from Georgia and the Barbie and Ken song you heard earlier are both from Ubu.com's 365 Days Project. I'm Amy Dickinson. Scott Carrier's and Nancy Updike's stories are from This American Life, thislife.org. And there's links to works by all the producers in this hour at hearingvoices.com. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Our producers are Scott Carrier, Ann Hepperman, Larry Massett, and Kara Oler. Our intern is Max Darham. Mix engineer is Robin Wise of soundimagery.com. Executive producer is Barrett Golding. From NPR, National Public Radio, this is HearingVoices.com. <laughs>